Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we're going to have an extended conversation with Ronald Aronson about his new book, We Reviving Social Hope. He argues that hope is more than a mood or a feeling. It's the basis of social will and political action, and it was rekindled by the Bernie Sanders campaign, which inspired collective action to make the world more equal. The Trump campaign and presidency is its mirror opposite, representing anti-hope based on a cynical, nostalgic faith in an authoritarian strongman with a large dose of xenophobia bigotry and misogyny. And it is in hope that Ron Aronson says we find the seeds of real change. Welcome. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased to have Ron Aronson with us today. He's a distinguished professor emeritus of the history of ideas at Wayne State University in Detroit. He's a lifelong political activist, was a community organizer, in the African-American neighborhood of New Brunswick, New Jersey, and an editor of Studies on the Left. If you're old, you may remember it. I remember it. And he is the author of many books. He's a recognized authority on Sartre and Marxism, and he has a book called Living Without God. I should mention he was a student of Marcuse's. And today we are talking about his latest book, We, Reviving Social Hope, which was just published by the University of Chicago press. Welcome, Ron. Thanks, Susie. Happy to have you in studio. I just wanted to say that Ron argues in this book, and we'll get to it in depth, that hope is more than a mood or a feeling. It's the basis of social will and political action. And he also says that it was rekindled by the Bernie Sanders campaign because it inspired collective action in order to make the world better and more equal. And the Trump campaign and presidency is its mere opposite, representing anti-hope. I'm so glad you're here, and congratulations on the work. Thank you. And I think maybe we should start with you defining what social hope is. Is Well, people talk about hope. It's a highly marketed term, if you were to Google hope. There are millions of entries, and everyone is thinking about hope in a whole bunch of ways. But what's happened in the past generation is the kind of hope for which I'm speaking, the hope primarily of the left to create a better world, that hope has been in recession, in withdrawal, and it's been attacked. It's been attacked by what is known as neoliberalism or American conservatism, there's been a systematic effort to dismantle social hope and say everything is up to you individually. It's called the what I call the privatization of hope. We talk a lot about privatization of social goods. What's happened psychologically and spiritually is that sense that we are together trying to build a better world has been attacked and has receded before the great market marketization of, of everything in the society. I think it's really important that you talk about what that privatization means, especially given today you can walk down any street anywhere in the world, walk into a school or a factory or a hospital, any place where telephones are allowed, and you will see people walking side by side and they're glued to yeah, their telephones. That's right. That's right. People are glued to their phones. People are relating to, if we think about it, social realities, but they're doing it very privately and very individually. There is a growth of a sense of me 
I, what I am responsible for, I'm responsible for myself, and a real diminishment of the sense that we are responsible collectively for the shape of the world we live in. I think it's pretty incredible because we live in an era where not just where it's, as you say, the privatization of everything. The car is kind of a great example of it. We live in mega cities where you struggle on a congested freeway because everybody wants to be alone in their car. Sure. Or in the case of L.A., don't have a lot of choices. And then you get this new phenomenon of Uber, which wants to replace public transportation mm-hmm. by privatizing it even more. And it's and, do you see it as emblematic? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the great economic growth engine in the automobile industry that's now taking root, the driverless car, the most insane idea in the world, if you think about it. What we need is public transportation rather than figuring out how people can move about in thirty, forty, fifty thousand $50,000 cars without themselves taking the wheel. So we're multiplying the private rather than thinking socially and, can I use this word, collectively. Absolutely. Well, I wanted to say, Ron, I was thrilled when I opened the book and you started with a discussion of we, the dystopian, I used to call it science fiction, novel by Yevgeny Zamyatin, which I read when I was an undergraduate and thought it was probably a very typical kind of science fiction novel to come out of the then Soviet Union. But can you explain why you thought of that and how even in appropriating that title, it relates to your subject? Zamyatin's book is entitled We because the we he's talking about is a fake we imposed by the system. And his is the first of a series of books Brave New World, 1984, but I would include Marcuse's One Dimensional Man or Allen Ginsberg's Howell, books that talk about how society is shrinking the individual and how people are living in an increasingly totalitarian world. That's the we of the 20th century, and it's a frightening phenomenon, and we're supposed to be struggling against that. I mean, Ginsberg was one of, and Marcuse were among my great heroes. What's the 21st century about? The I has grown out of control. And it's an interesting, weird, fake I because it's an I that's created by social processes gone wild, by social forces out of control. But it's an I that precludes you and I and others collectively, democratically taking control of our existence. And I call my book We with a conscious reference to Zamyatin and trying to flip it because we today should mean something that is really emancipatory, that's something that is the direction for solving the problems that otherwise can't be solved. Well, when you look at it and try to apply it to what's happening politically today, and since I last spoke to you, I think I spoke to you just after Trump was elected, and now here we are, we're seeing the ascendancy of right-wing populism in Europe especially, but in many places around the globe, and it seems like that great wave, as you mentioned in your book, of maybe collective action and social hope rekindled that started with the Arab Spring and then spread to Occupy somehow has been, I wouldn't say eclipsed, but the right has taken advantage of it better than the left has. 
And you had said in your book that Trump represents the antithesis or the mm-hmm. twisting of this social hope. So maybe you could just take it there and kind of relate it to the we, I sort of. Yeah, I call Trump the a distorting mirror version of hope. People who voted for Trump had a certain kind of hope. But ask yourself, what is it they hope for? The Bernie phenomenon, or what we now call the resistance, the anti-Trump movement, has a collective hope. People are acting together very democratically in the name of democracy against what? It's against racist ideas. It's against the mega millionaires, billionaires controlling the society. It's against that distorting mirror hope, which has as its core the fact that he knows what to do. He will solve our problems. Anybody who's individually, individually, <laughs> him, yeah. There's a sort of semi, semi worshipful hmm. dimension here. People are putting their faith in a superior force. They're not acting themselves. They're not collectively making decisions. They're voting for a great man, and they want the great man to deliver for them. In that hope, and I put that in quotes, that distorting mirror hope. There's a certain despair about what we, for example, we of the formerly unionized working class in the United States, what we can accomplish. Voting for Trump means essentially we can't accomplish anything anymore. We need this media star to come in and make things better. And it's a weird kind of hope. Much has been made of the fact that his base was the white working class, and there's also been a lot of doubt about how far that goes. And some people say, well, it's based on the last gasp of white supremacism, racism, bigotry. But I think it's better to say that, especially from where you're coming from in Michigan and what we call the Rust Belt, that it's really about those who were left behind and don't see a future for themselves, so taking a chance. With this, but Trump's popularity has plummeted. I guess because he's showing he isn't such a great negotiator after all. He's also showing that his real direction is the direction of the oligopoly, of the very, very wealthy, the one-tenth of one percent. He put them into his cabinet, and the programs he's developing are really programs for the very, very rich. So when push comes to shove, the people who were left behind, who voted for Trump out of some sort of last-ditch hope, are being left behind again. Yeah, and there's a chapter in your book, and the book is We Reviving Social Hope, just published by the University of Chicago Press. You talk about the way that this can often lead to cynicism. And I guess we should actually go there to describe how, because what you just said, Ron Aronson, is that we used to have this more collective form of trade unionism. And I think you were beginning to go to how these collective actions lead to a feeling of solidarity, which is akin, I think, in some ways to this social hope that you're talking about. But then in the privatization of hope, that it seems like it's almost the end of this universalist idea and promotes a form of cynicism. So maybe you could take that up in the political context that we live in today. Well, I have a chapter on cynicism in the book, as you know, and it's kind of built around Everybody Knows, the song by Leonard Cohen, yeah. which I call the protest song against the absence of protest songs. <laughs> in other words, everybody knows what's going on but somehow people feel so isolated, so without 
hope without a collective sense of making a difference that they just let it go on and try to get in their own way a piece of the action or a place to hide or a place to relax. Everybody knows. But the problem is that there's no relief in there because it's painful, it's sad, as you, as you know from the song. I would just recommend locate it on the Internet. You can find the song, listen to it, and cry. Oh, absolutely, and it's right. beautiful. And unfortunately, Leonard Cohen just died, yeah. so it was played quite a lot. Yeah. So maybe you could just go from there about what is cynicism and what does yeah. it do to hope? Cynicism, we can't change things. Nothing's going to change. Things will always stay the same. But it's really, if you think about it, it's a withdrawal from the public world. It's a withdrawal from the social world. It's a withdrawal from wanting to make a difference with other people. The only difference you can make if you're cynical is in some little corner of the universe that you control by yourself. The notion that we can create male-female equality, that women can overcome subjugation, that black people can overcome racism, that workers can organize. All of these can, can, can. Cynicism answers can't. Can't do it, won't do it. The problem with cynicism is it's a lie. We know it's a lie because all the things I've talked about are historical realities. And I point in the book to many historical realities and movements in which people got together, had a feeling of their own power. There's a certain thing that happens when we come together collectively to act in a movement. Several things, in fact. One of them is we no longer feel ourselves as just me. We feel ourselves as we. Another thing that happens is we no longer simply perceive through my own individual eyes We perceive collectively and we see the situation no longer as given, but as capable of changing. We can make a difference. So those are some of the amazing changes that happens when you become part of a we and we begin to strategize, organize, and part of what we do is we look back at our past accomplishments. We look back at human history and talk about the various transformations that humans together have operated. Also, I think, because what you're describing, too, is even though cynicism is there kind of lurking under, in a way, and I think also goes together very well with the privatization of hope that you're talking about, but it seems like you're also saying that it's cyclical and that it can be turned around into its mirror opposite. I don't know if that's the case, but we've seen that in periods of, like I think of the 80s and the cynicism of the 80s, but I don't think of the people who were cynical then as being lost forever, that it's possible in given social situation. And you say things like not just waves of, say, protest movements, but you also say disasters and other sorts mm-hmm. of forms that bring people together. Sure. The most recent disaster that is bringing people together is the election of Donald Trump and the unfolding of his programs. So what's happening is a strange thing. There was this wonderful cartoon that made the rounds of the Internet by someone named Visselner. And that cartoon has Barack and Michelle Obama leaving the White House. Are you ready, Michelle? The lights are on in the White House. One of them is pulling a little suitcase and... They're about to leave. 
Obama puts his hand on the light switch and turns out the lights in the White House. And then the lights go out, the building is dark, and the lights go out all over America. That was a feeling many people had after the election. Except the lights didn't go out over America. We walked downtown in Royal Oak, Michigan, town next to our town, and this was on the Friday night. We were just going out for dinner and a movie, and there is a demonstration uh, spontaneously Immediately, erupted. too. And we just joined it. Millions of people joined it. There were demonstrations. There were meetings. There was the magnificent Women's March inauguration. 750,000 here in L.A. Um, right. I mean, this incredible fact, the largest wave of demonstrations anywhere just about ever. But that wasn't just one time only. There was the travel ban. People went to airports. There was people flooding, flocking to congressional offices, uh, picketing. And, and pe- defeating the repeal. Defeating the repeal of the ACA and people having that experience. Now, what I point to in discussing that with other people who have been active as I've been is we're not just pushing back on Trump. We are finding ourselves together. We are experiencing our own power. We're experiencing our own sense of community and collectivity. We are experiencing what it's like to belong to something wider, to not give in to cynicism, to not just sort of abandon all hope. And we are constructing hope. Hope is not, it's not an idea. It's not some sort of mood. And this is maybe the key theme in the book. Hope is activity of people engaging together and generating a sense of possibility, of potency. And when people do that, they hope actively. And that's the kind of hope I'm talking about, collective and social and committed to making a change. So what's happened in the anti-Trump resistance is despite the pain many of us feel about Trump as president, we are regenerating in ourselves, among us, a sense of hope, and it's that hope of a movement. I was laughing because a friend of mine said she had PTSD, President Trump stress (laughs) disorder, (laughs) from every day waking up to whatever the trauma of the day was. But I think you're absolutely right. And so a lot of your book, though, goes through not just kind of explaining the difference between this collective hope, the social hope that's being rekindled, but also looking at different times in history when it has been rekindled. And you talk about these waves. And we're in the centenary year of the Russian Revolution. Everybody's thinking about at least I am a lot. (laughs) And that was a period of great hope. And then it was, it seems like it comes back every decade or two, more or less. There was a longer period in the post-war boom, you could say. But it's very much tied, I guess, isn't it, Ron Aronson, to your notion of social change, that social change and collective hope, or social hope, go together? Go together, absolutely. So there are, in the last, what, 100 years, the period around the Russian Revolution, then the mid-30s, the Popular Front government in France, the Spanish Civil War, and the organizing of trade unions. I talk about the Flint sit-down strike. Yes, and I had Uh, Saul Dollinger here to talk about his wife's role in that wonderful sit-down strike. Maybe you should just take a little segue, a brief one, and tell our listeners what that was. Okay, the sit-down strike in Flint 
beginning in late 36 and into 37, a creation of a core group occupying several factories in Flint. They didn't necessarily represent a majority of workers because they didn't have collective bargaining and nobody could take a vote. But an activist group said, it's time we organized a union here. And they sat in at the factory and the whole community of the Flint working class supported them. They managed to get fed. They managed to organize within the factories. They created a counter community in the factories. And that was happening at the level of the union and the town. But then there were negotiations getting the federal government involved eventually, the state government involved. The governor, Frank Murphy, decided not to send in the National Guard to break up the strike. So what happened was people taking action here and, by the way, inspired by sit-down strikes in France, which led to a popular front government in France and a whole wave of social legislation in France. That happened there, inspiring people in Flint. And the Flint movement creating the United Automobile Workers uh, representing the General Motors factories in Flint, but that also generated support all over the country in all sorts of places, including uh, hospitals in New York, dime stores. It's just sort of an amazing wave. But what happens is people see it can be done. And when they feel it can be done, they feel they did it, we can do it too. So that was another one of the great waves, and it's inspiring, inspiring partially because the community came out in, large members of the community came out in support of the strike. They countered the fact that General Motors had influence over all the main newspapers in Flint. They created their own communications. They created the sound trucks that went into working-class neighborhoods and then over to the factories. So it's an amazing self-created process that won. And because it won, and it had effect elsewhere. This is the kind of thing that happened during the Civil Rights Movement. This is the kind of thing that happened in different ways during the Women's Movement. It's the kind of thing that happened in South Africa, always with other people elsewhere, joining, which we say, jumping on the bandwagon or being inspired or participating in their own way. I think the Women's March is the beginning of something like that, too. And I was going to say, when I went to grad school in Scotland, there Mm -hmm. was a huge wave of factory occupations and strikes there. And we formed an auxiliary committee, very much like what happened in Flint and had happened in Minneapolis, and went there with poster-making materials and books and did whatever we could to help the workers who were occupying. And what I saw there was so inspiring because all of a sudden people were just devouring books and ideas. They were making incredible art mm-hmm. and all, you know, in order to support the occupation and the strike. But what you could see is that time gets condensed when you're feeling empowered and in charge of yourself mm-hmm. and your learning just kind of increases exponentially. And it's a feeling that I hope everybody in their lifetime gets to experience. Your sense of what matters changes profoundly. Instead of simply feeling that the day's routines and obligations have have to be met, there's a sense of, well, we're now in this other universe with these other people, and we can begin to ask what's really important 
And this is really what Marx is talking about. I think you mentioned that it's like Sally Fields in that movie, and it's also what Rosa Luxemburg talks about in The Mass Strike, that there's this sense when you come together that you can, that you're in charge, that you can make make history be yours in a way, or you're in charge of your own destiny. But yes, collectively, that's what's amazing. You begin to have that experience, and that's what I'm really stressing. You begin to have that experience that I can make a difference because we're making a difference. That's what people are experiencing right now in the anti-Trump resistance. I'm speaking with Ron Aronson, and he is the author of a brand-new book called We Reviving Social Hope, just out by the University of Chicago Press. And people who would like a taste of the book can go to Alternet, where they did an excerpt of the beginning of the book, the first several pages. Great. In the book, you talk about progress. And it's a very interesting chapter, I found, because you say that progress isn't hope. You talk about progress with a capital P. And because so many people today say, well, I'm a progressive. Is this something about progress? The people who talk about being progressives usually see themselves as activists. And I hope they're using that with a small p, because they're talking about us doing what has happened since the beginning of the modern world. With secularization in the 18th century, with the French Revolution, with the Industrial Revolution, and the beginnings of workers' movements and democratic movements, a feeling I would consider the most important enlightenment feeling is that we collectively can create a world meeting people's needs. And it's a world. It's not a, an other world after this life, but it's a secular world that we can inhabit with each other today, tomorrow, now. That sense of progressive, with a small p, involves a belief in human progress, and that may include scientific and technical and economic progress. I mean, Marx, for example, was all about economic progress, but he was also about economic progress being torn out of the hands of those who are using it for their own profit and benefit and power. So the question of progress is, in a meaningful way, is something about democratization. We have the opposite going on now. And the kind of progress we're experiencing is the unhinged market, which is supposed to make things better for everybody, but is really creating a maelstrom that's overwhelming all of us, that nobody controls, And that lack of control is deliberate, conscious. The free market is explicitly not supposed to be democratically, socially controlled by people. It's controlled, of course, by those in positions of power, those who are making the profits from it. But that kind of progress, that is the capital P progress, where we're supposed to lie down and let this roll over us. That's the maelstrom. And the kind of hope I'm talking about has to oppose that progress. That's not a new idea. Philosopher John Dewey had that idea 100 years ago, that the notion of progress with a capital P and just assuming that things would happen for the better is false, that human beings have to take control. 
And where does that take us? You're saying, I think, as well, that in this period when you talk about cynicism and consumer cynicism and you go into this great discussion of uh, the framers of cynicism, like Frank Luntz for the Republicans and maybe George Lakoff on the other side, that it's all about framing. It's not about the ideas, really. But it takes us then to how somehow in this period, even though we have a Trump presidency, we have this tremendous resistance. Would you say that that social hope is rekindled? And how do you think, is there any explanation of how people hold on to it? Uh, (laughs) That's a delicate question (laughs) because it's very fragile. Social hope is fragile and it can easily dissolve. People can get disillusioned if you don't win a victory immediately. We've seen it with movements and I talk about that in the book, how within a movement – At a moment of defeat, people say, we made the wrong decision. We made the wrong choices. We had the wrong strategy. And they don't understand, I think, sharply enough, that whatever we do, there are forces that we are struggling against. The Patterson silk manufacturers, for example, who may be more powerful than we are. And we have somehow to forgive ourselves our defeats even while... We're continuing to struggle. So in the current situation, the balance of forces between Trump on the one side and all the forces behind him and the resistance, there are certain things the resistance will be able to accomplish. We've already accomplished certain things. It's really important. To me, the most important thing is not whether a lot of people are talking about, well, having saved the ACA, now we have to push for Medicare for all. But I think it's more important that we figure out how to keep this movement alive and how to nurture it. Ron, we've actually run out of time, and it's amazing how fast it goes when we're talking about things that are great to talk about. Ron Aronson has just published this book called We, Reviving Social Hope, and it's just come out from the University of Chicago Press. He's a distinguished professor emeritus at Wayne State and the author of many other books, a longtime activist, and he's written a book that I think could be a Bible for our age. Ron Aronson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sumkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. 